Like Natalie said, the first thing I want to talk about is why I'm the one telling you these things, why I'm here talking about Judaism. My name is Max Friedman in English. Growing up, my Hebrew name was Moshe Ben Doran, and that is the name that my Hebrew and Torah teachers referred to me as because for kindergarten through eighth grade, I went to Torah school. I studied Hebrew and I studied Judaic theology every day, and I went to Jewish services three times a week, and I had my bar mitzvah in 2012. I'll talk more about that a little bit later. But all that time, growing up from as long as I can remember, I was a very devout atheist. So I believed in my heart of hearts that there was no God, that religion is the opium of the masses, and that religion just exists to explain things that science can't explain. And I believed that to my core until I was 15 years old. And I was and am an avid scuba diver. And one day when I was 15 years old, I was on a dive just like any other. I had been on dozens before this one. And I can't tell you why this happened on that particular day when I was 15 years old, other than to say that God reached out and tapped me on the shoulder. But there I am, I'm 100 feet underwater on the Atlantic Continental Shelf. I'm staring out at 4,000 feet of deep blue void. I can't see anything but the color blue. I can't hear anything at all. And for whatever reason, this thought just popped into my mind. That there are only two ways to explain how I physically got there. One is that by pure cosmic coincidence, lightning struck an amino acid chain billions of years ago. Sometime later, a fish crawled out of water. Sometime after that, one of the great apes walked between two trees. And then sometime after that, here I am, a primate wearing a backpack with 85 atmospheres of oxygen on my back. And then all of that happened by chance. So that's one explanation. The other explanation is that God is real. And when I had that thought, it's like I could feel the atheism leaving my body. So, I had that thought, <clears throat> hundred feet out of water, I realized, all right, I'm not an atheist anymore, but I'm just a theist, because there were some problems with Judaism. I felt like Judaism wasn't giving me personally the complete picture. So I got home and I basically started religion shopping. I looked at shamanism, I looked at Shintoism, Hinduism, Buddhism, you name it, I probably looked at it for a little bit. Until one day I found myself at Dunwood United Methodist Church watching a Protestant service, and I thought, hold on, now we're getting somewhere. I felt like I was getting some of the pieces that I thought I was missing in Judaism, but that I wasn't quite there yet. So then I checked out an Orthodox service, and I thought, well, warmer, but not quite. And then one day, when I was 15 years old, I went to All Saints Catholic Church, and I watched a Mass. And I thought, huh, I think I like everything I saw here. So then I heard about RCIA, I heard about there was this cool program where they just explained Catholicism to you. So I was like, all right, I'll go check that out. I'll go to RCIA. I'll show up every Sunday until the exact moment that I have a question that isn't answered to my satisfaction, and then I'll go look at another religion. So I went every Sunday. I asked an annoying amount of questions, and that moment never came. So the Easter vigil, when I was 16 years old now, I was like, huh. I said I'd leave as soon as there was a question that nobody could answer my satisfaction. It never happened, so I guess I'm Catholic now. <laughs> so I got baptized, I've never looked back. <laughs> Alright, that's enough about me. Why is this important? Why are we talking about Judaism in a Catholic cathedral? Well, co quotes explain things better than I can, so I'm going to start with some quotes. The first, this is important because the Catechism tells us so. A better knowledge of the Jewish people's faith and religious life, as professed and lived even now, can help our better understanding of certain aspects of Christian liturgy. So Judaism is important because understanding the Jewish faith helps us understand our own faith. And this second quote, short four-word quote, 
from Pope Pius XI is very near and dear in the hearts of many Jews. So this quote is from 1938. Nazi Germany was beginning to impose their policies on the Jewish people of Germany, and anti-Semitism was on the rise in Europe. And Pope Pius XI said to a group of uh, Belgian pilgrims, spiritually, we as Catholic are Semites. We are descended from the Jewish people, and anti-Semitism is incompatible with the Catholic Church as we as Catholics are spiritual Jews. This is sort of seen among Jewish people as the first theological nod about the many links between the Catholic Church and the Jewish faith. So now let's get Jews. Before I talk about the faith itself, there are a couple, for lack of a better term, logistics I need to talk about with Judaism. And the first is that Judaism is an ethno-religion, meaning that it is as much an ethnic identity as it is a religious one. And the reason for that is that there are very low conversion rates into Judaism because the Jewish faith has no call to evangelize. There's nothing in the Jewish faith that says you have to be Jewish to achieve salvation or that there is any eternal benefit to being Jewish. In fact, within the Jewish faith, it is seen more as a burden. So in the Old Testament, we see that the Jews were God's chosen people. But that comes as a burden, not as a benefit. That because the Jews are God's chosen people, there's more expected of them, not more given to them. So there's no call for Jews to seek out other people to convert. And the second reason is that the physical act of converting to Judaism is quite difficult and deliberately difficult. So even in the most relaxed of synagogues today, you're still probably looking at six months to a year of study before a rabbi will give you what's called the yoke of mitzvot, and we'll talk about that later, but that's how you become a Jew. And in orthodox and strict synagogues, that period of study can last several years. So there's no call to evangelize, and it's very hard to convert in. So other than the rare exceptions of conversion, the only way to become a Jew is to have a Jewish mother, and specifically a Jewish mother. In Judaism, your father's religion doesn't matter at all. All that matters is if your mother was Jewish. And within Judaism, if your mother was Jewish, you are Jewish for life. So there's no excommunication. And if I were to go to my old synagogues and talk to my old rabbis who know that I've been practicing Catholic for many years now, they would say that under Jewish law, I'm still a Jew. There's nothing I can do about it. And so what comes from this is a shared ancestry. Since a lot of, there's not a lot of conversion in the way you become a Jew is by having a Jewish mother, a lot of Jews, in fact the vast majority of Jews, can trace their lineage back to a few common ancestors. So even if you leave the faith of Judaism or you don't practice, you can never set aside that ethnic heritage that comes with Judaism for most Jews. And so to explain that a little bit further, I want to talk about something called the Jewish diaspora. So as Christ foretold, the Romans destroyed the second temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD and the Jewish people lost the third Jewish war against the Romans. And when that happened, the Romans essentially kicked the Jews out of the Promised Land, kicked them out of Jerusalem, out of what is now present-day Israel. And they went in three separate directions. And because they were then separated from each other for 2,000 years, these three separate groups of Jews developed very different traditions and very different uh, beliefs from each other. Even though they're all Jewish, the beliefs change a little bit based on region. So I want to say this sort of as a disclaimer, that I belong to a group called the Ashkenazi Jews, and I'll talk about that more in a second, 
So everything I'm going to talk about tonight comes from that Ashkenazi heritage, not from the other Jewish heritages. So first, the most common group that you can see in blue on this map are the Ashkenazi Jews. And these are Jews that when they were forced out of Judea, they went to the Roman provinces of Thrace, Moesia, and Dalmatia, and then settled in what is now modern day Russia, Poland, and Germany. And the reason this is the most prominent group today is because these are the Jews that were European during the colonial period. So the first Jews to go to the New World, to go to Iceland, to go to Scandinavia, Australia, etc., they were all Ashkenazi Jews. So if you know a Jewish person in America today, it's more likely than not that they are an Ashkenazi Jew. Now the second biggest group are Sephardic Jews. And those were Jews that fled south from Jerusalem to the Roman provinces of Egypt and North Africa in orange on the map, and then up to the Iberian Peninsula. And since these were the Jews that were in Spain during the colonial period, that's why Latin America is marked as later Sephardic. And then finally, the third main group are the Mizrahi. And these are Jews that spread east through the Parthian Empire and settled in the Middle East and in modern day Asia. And then the final logistic I want to talk about, and then we'll get into the heart of what it is to be Jewish, is that there's no central hierarchy in Judaism. So as we know, we have the Pope, we have the College of Cardinals, we have bishops, priests, deacons, all of it. There's no analog to that in Judaism. So we know from the story of Christ's passion that at the time of Christ's ministry, there was the Sanhedrin, there was Caiaphas, the high priest, there was Herod, the king of the Jews. None of that has existed since the diaspora began. So there's no leading authority on what it means to be Jewish. So opinions can change based on region and even synagogue to synagogue. So now let's get into a little bit about the general belief structures. I think when you're examining a religion or a belief system in general, the best way to start is to see how they answer the three big questions. Why are we here? What happens after we die? And what's the point of it all? So the first question, why are we here? If you were to go to a rabbi today and say, Rabbi, physically, why are we here? Why as people, how did we get here? You might find that their answer is pretty similar to what the Catholic Church would tell you. God created the world in seven days. He created man in his own image. He placed man in the garden through Adam and Eve. There was the fall, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, and so on. The one difference is Jesus doesn't play a role in that story for Judaism. So the why are we here? Very similar between the two faiths. But that next question of what happens after we die is probably the starkest contrast between Judaism and Catholicism. And it's one of the pieces that I felt was missing and what led me to seek out a different religion. So there's a lot of debate in Judaism about the afterlife, and it really comes down to three main schools of thought. The minority view is that there is a Christian-like afterlife. There's a garden that functions very similar to our heaven, and it's where souls who are worthy of reward go after they die. And then there is Shia, which functions very similarly to our hell, and it's where souls unworthy of reward go. The middle view, the more agnostic view in Judaism, is that it doesn't really matter if there's an afterlife. Because we, as mortal human beings, we can't conceptualize it anyway. So there's no point in worrying about it. What matters is the here and now. But the majority view, and the one I was raised in, is that there's nothing after this life. That God created man from dust to dust we shall return, and that's the end of the story. And the key thing that transcends all three of these beliefs is that the focus in Judaism is solely on the here and now. 
that the afterlife isn't what's important. What's important is what we do here and now, today. So that leads to the third question. What's the point of it all? What does focusing on the here and now mean? What does it mean to leave a Jewish life? And this is another one where I'm going to have a quote to answer it. So Rabbi Hillel was a contemporary of Jesus. He died in 10 AD, and he's widely viewed as Jew by Jewish scholars to be one of the greatest Jewish rabbis who ever lived. And he was asked by one of his students, Rabbi, what does it mean to be Jewish? What's the Torah all about? But Rabbi, you got to tell me while you're standing on one foot. You know, cut to the chase. Give me the spark notes. And Rabbi Hillel said, that which is hateful to you, do not do to others. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go forth and learn. So in other words, the short answer of what it means to leave a Jewish life is simply to obey the golden rule. But Rabbi Hillel, he, he did miss a couple things, so there's a longer version that I'll give. And that is what I mentioned earlier, the yoke of the mitzvot or the yoke of the commandment. So what it means to be Jewish is to obey all 613 of God's commandments to Moses. And to break one of those commandments in Judaism is to sin. If that sounds a little bit familiar to Catholicism, it's because it is. It's part of what it means to live a Catholic life, too. And something important to note is that there are no sacraments in Judaism. So there's no sacrament of reconciliation. There's no structured act of confession. But the act itself of seeking and receiving forgiveness for your sins is just as important in the two faiths. So in Judaism, if you have sinned against God, if you have broken a commandment against God, you're not allowed to confess that sin to anyone. So it's not just that you don't do it through a rabbi or a priest. You're actually not allowed to. If you sin against God, you have to go completely on your own to a quiet room, confess that sin directly to God, and then you're forgiven. But if you sin against a person, you can't even ask God's forgiveness. In Judaism, you have to go to the person. So if I stole Braxton's favorite shirt and didn't give it back to him, the only way I could be absolved of that sin is if I go to Braxton, personally apologize to him. But in Judaism, Braxton can spurn me. He can say, nope, I don't forgive you. There's no onus on him to forgive me for stealing his shirt. And it's called the rule of the three apologies. It's my duty, as it would be my duty as the sinner, to go to Braxton and apologize to him up to three times. And if on the third attempt Braxton still won't forgive me, then and only then am I forgiven by God. So that's essentially how confession works in Judaism. So the next thing I want to talk to you about is scripture. Where do the Jews get all this? Where do they get the information? What books do they look to? And there are three sources of scripture in Judaism. The first, this scroll right here, is the Torah. You might have heard the name before. The Torah contains the big five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these are the five books, they're God's law as given to Moses. And so these five books are often referred to as the books of Moses. And to be a true Torah, or what's called a Sefer Torah in Judaism, all 304,000 Hebrew letters of those five books need to be handwritten with quill and ink on a special type of parchment made out of animal hide that is then treated with salt and tree bark and rolled into that enormous scroll. And that's a Torah, and that's the heart of Jewish scripture. The second source is the book in the middle, which is called the Talmud. And it functions very similarly to our catechism, and it is one of the inspirations for our catechism. Because the Talmud is 
a, essentially a group of commentary. It's opinions and comments from thousands of rabbis throughout history, starting as early as 1500 BC and ending in around the fifth century AD. And it essentially answers all the questions you might not be able to find directly in the Torah of what it means to live a Jewish life. And then the third source is called the Tanakh, which we often refer to as the Hebrew Bible in Catholicism. And that's where we find the other 19 books of the Old Testament. So if you open the Bible, you'll notice there are 24 books in the Old Testament. The Torah only contains five. The Tanakh contains the other 19. So that's where we get all the books of the prophets, Lamentations, and all those other books that make up our Old Testament. They come from the Tanakh. So that's Jewish scripture. Next, what does a Jewish service look like? Well, first in Judaism, the Sabbath, or Shabbat, starts at sundown on Friday night and ends at sundown on Saturday night. So Jewish services take place Saturday morning instead of on Sunday, like our Mass does. And a Jewish service typically lasts about two and a half to three hours. Sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little shorter, but it's typically two and a half to three hours. And it starts with a period of praise and worship, which usually includes psalms and other song-like prayers, and it's meant to be uplifting. It's meant to be essentially a warm-up for the congregation, to sort of focus the congregation's minds that, all right, we're about to pray, let's be happy about it. And it's usually accompanied <laughs> by an instrument, and I've never been able to understand why, but in America, that instrument is almost always an acoustic guitar. Why? But it just is. And then, <laughs> After that period of praise and worship, there's something called the barhu. And the barhu, it's literally the music stops abruptly when we get to that point in the Jewish service. And the barhu is the actual call to prayer. It's the rabbi saying, all right, all right, enough fun. Let's get down to the serious business of praying. And the barhu takes the form of a call and response. So the rabbi initiates a prayer, the congregation replies, and then the rabbi says it again. And if that sounds familiar, it's because that's where Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy. That's where it comes from. It comes from the Barhu. And then after the Barhu comes the two most important prayers of Judaism, the Shema and the Amidah. So the Shema, one of the commandments that God gave Moses was that Jews had to pray this prayer twice a, uh, twice a day. And practicing Jews, observant Jews today, still do this twice every day. But thankfully, it is the shortest prayer I've ever heard, so I'm just going to say the whole thing right now. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, Adonai is our God, Adonai is one. That's the whole thing, and it's the most important prayer in Judaism. So everybody gets quiet, everybody gets called to prayer, their minds get focused, and then they say those few words. And that's the most important prayer in the Jewish faith. And the next most important prayer is the Amidah, which, if you're an eight-year-old Jewish boy in Torah school, Torah school, excuse me, the Amidah is your least favorite part of the day because <laughs> it is the longest prayer I've ever heard in my life, so I'm not going to say the whole thing right now. <laughs> and when it's chanted in its full version, it takes about 15 minutes to get through. And what it comes from is another commandment. You might see a trend of this. But in the commandments, Jews are told that they have to make ritual sacrifices, animal sacrifices, every Shabbat. But they're also told that those sacrifices can only be made in the temple, but the temple is destroyed. So what do they do? There's no temple. We have to make sacrifices. We have to make them in the temple. So rabbis in the first century AD came up with an answer through the Amidah prayer. So nowadays, instead of making ritual animal sacrifices every Saturday, 
we or Jews say the Amidah to replace that sacrifice. So it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving and of praise. And then after that comes the Torah reading. Now, the Torah reading, again, looks pretty similar to what the readings look like in our Mass. So first, the rabbi will take the Torah out of the tabernacle or the ark. He'll shoulder it because it's a very heavy object. And he'll walk around the congregation very slowly with the Torah on his shoulder. And then as the Torah passes the members of the congregation, they'll reach out and touch it with a piece of cloth and then touch that piece of cloth to their mouth as a physical act that the congregation is receiving the word of God. And then once the rabbi has completed his circuit, he'll put the Torah on the altar, he'll remove the garments of the Torah, and then he'll roll the scrolls to the readings for the day, and he'll chant it. And this chanting is somewhere between talking and singing. It's kind of hard to explain. I was never any, any good at it growing up. But it's a, very, it's a very special way of reciting Torah. It's the only way it can be read in a Torah reading service. And then after that, the Torah is bound back up. It is clothed again in its garments. And then it is placed back in the tabernacle. And then the rabbi will give something called the Devar Torah, which is exactly what a homily is. So... The rabbi will say, here's what the reading's about, here's how you apply it to your life. It's a sermon just like the ones you hear in Mass today. And then next, there's the Kiddush, which is the blessing over the wine. And you'll notice it comes right after the homily. You know, we still do that too. And then there are concluding prayers, and three hours after you begin, the service is over. So, next thing I want to mention are holidays. And I don't want us to be here until midnight on a Tuesday, so I'm not going to talk about all of them, but I'm going to talk about the three big ones. But first, we've got to talk about the Hebrew dating system, because the Hebrew calendar looks very different from our own. Because the Jewish people and the Jewish faith, they use a lunar solar calendar. So the months are lunar months. They're 29 or 30 days long, and they follow the cycle of the moon. But the solar component is that once every 19 years, a full leap month is added to that to the 19th year, so that the years coincide with our Gregorian calendar. Otherwise, it would just be a whole mess. So there's a leap month, and that is the solar component, but mostly the Jewish people follow a lunar calendar. And today's date is the 21st day of Av of the year 5783. So you notice there's no era attached to that. There's no BC or AD. And that's because in Jewish tradition, Time starts in the year 3761 BC. According to the Jewish faith, that's the year that Adam and Eve were placed in the garden. So this year in the Jewish calendar is 5783, because it's been 5,783 years since Adam and Eve in the garden, according to the Jewish tradition. <coughs> so the first holiday I want to talk about is Rosh Hashanah, and that's the Jewish New Year. But it doesn't celebrate the start of the calendar year, and so it's actually celebrated in late September or early October on the Gregorian calendar, and the first day of the seventh month on the Hebrew calendar. And what it celebrates is the actual placement of Adam and Eve in the garden, the day that man's role in God's creation was initiated. And the way that the occasion is marked is with two main traditions. The first, is through the blowing of something called a shofar, which looks like that. And it is a ritual horn made out of ram's horn. And it makes a very unique sound that I wouldn't exactly say is a good sound. It, it honestly sounds a lot like a really cool burp, I guess. But, 
but it's a very loud sound. And the tradition comes from the Old Testament, the book of Boaz, where we are, or excuse me, the book of Ruth, where we are told that you're supposed to make a noise to mark the occasion of the new year. Why that noise became the shofar? I'm not sure. I did a lot of research, did a lot of Torah school. I don't think anybody really knows, but that's what you do it with. <laughs> and the other way you celebrate the occasion is by eating apples dipped in honey. And that's to evoke a sweet new year. So it's a very happy holiday. It's very festive. And then 10 days later, you get to Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day of the Jewish year. And it is the exact opposite of Rosh Hashanah. There's no happiness in Yom Kippur. It is a day of complete and total fasting, ascetic behavior, and reflection. And so when I say complete and total fasting, on Yom Kippur, observant Jews can't eat or drink anything, not even water. You can't work, you can't play, you can't use electricity, cook, clean, nothing. You're not even really supposed to talk. The only thing you're supposed to do for the entire day is think about all of the sins you've committed in the previous year, and then go find the people you sinned against and apologize to them. And that's all you do for the whole day of Yom Kippur. And those two, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, form what's known as the Jewish High Holidays. That's why I think they're worth mentioning, is that the most important holidays in Judaism. The third holiday I want to mention is one that is very important to Catholicism, and that is Passover. So Passover is eight days long. It's typically celebrated in April on the Gregorian calendar, and it almost always overlaps Easter. And the purpose of Passover is to remember and to celebrate the story of Exodus, of the Jewish people being freed from their slavery in Egypt. And when I say commemorate, the two ways that this is really done are one, Jewish people during Passover do not eat anything with yeast in it at all. Because the story goes that when the Jews fled Egypt, they were in such a hurry that they couldn't bake any bread. So instead, they placed a mixture of flour and water on a rock and let it dry, and it turned into something called matzah, which, just imagine the driest cracker fathomable. Like, it makes a saltine look refreshing. But that's, <laughs> that's pretty much what you eat during Passover. And one of the ways that Jewish people over time have found a way to make it appealing is there's something called matzo ball soup, and if you've never had it, it's awesome, and I urge you to find a Jewish deli and get you some because it's great. <laughs> so that's one way. The other way is there's something called Passover Seder. The Passover Seder is a four-hour long dinner that I will, again, not go over every component of, but in the Seder, you commemorate every single aspect of the slavery in Egypt and of the freedom and of the wandering in the desert, and some of it is as simple as dipping parsley in salt water and tasting it to remember the tears of the Jewish ancestors who were slaves in Egypt. And some of it's a little more complicated and a little more abstract. And there are two things I want to talk about that we celebrate at the Seder. So one is four cups of wine are blessed and consumed by the people attending the Seder, and this is to commemorate and to fulfill the old covenant made between God and Abraham. And I mentioned that, and it'll be important a little bit later. And the second one is we commemorate the 10 plagues. We count when we talk about the 10 plagues that God, through Moses, inflicted on the Egyptians to get the Pharaoh to let the Jewish people leave. And the 10th of those plagues, the final one, the one that got the Pharaoh to say, all right, the Jews, you can go, you can be free was the death of the Egyptian firstborn. So God told Moses and told the Israelites that he was going 
to send an angel of death to Egypt to go over every household and kill all of the firstborn children. But he told the Jewish people they were to take a sacrificial lamb and slaughter, and that the lamb's blood would then be placed on the walls, or excuse me, door frames of the Jewish homes. And so when the angel of death came down from heaven, he would see those harms, homes marked with the blood of the lamb, and he would pass over them and spare their children. So that's where the name Passover comes from. And if the symbolism of Passover and the blood of the lamb sounds familiar, it's because it is too. And some of you might know this, a lot of you might know this, but the Last Supper that Christ had with his disciples was a Passover Seder. It wasn't ordinary dinner, it was a Passover Seder. And the Seder itself has remained unchanged for thousands of years. It's a very regimented way that Jewish people remember the enslavement in Egypt and the story of the Exodus. And so when Christ said to his disciples, do this in memory of me, he wasn't saying, do this as a symbolic gesture, do this to remember me. He was saying, do this like the Seder. Remember me in a way that will be unchanged for hundreds of generations like the Seder. Those are Jewish holidays. <laughs> the next thing I want to talk about, and at my wife's insistence, I've included a picture of myself at my own bar mitzvah from February of 2012 when I was 12 years old. It, it had to be done. I didn't want to do it. But <laughs> so what the heck is a bar mitzvah? So if you don't know, as I mentioned, there are no sacraments in Judaism. And so the bar mitzvah can be seen as all of the Catholic uh, sacraments of initiation wrapped into one act. So there's no baptism or confirmation or anything. Instead, there is just the bar mitzvah. And it typically happens when a child is around 13 years old, as close to the 13th birthday as you can get it. And it symbolizes that Jewish child becoming a full-fledged Jewish adult and being recognized as a Jewish adult. Which continuing many of the themes within Judaism is that it's not a reward, it's a burden. Because before your bar mitzvah, you're a kid, so you're sort of excused from obeying the commandments as well as everyone else. But once you have your bar mitzvah, that goes away. You're not a kid anymore, you're an adult, you're responsible for your sins. So what is it, what is the act itself? Well, bar mitzvah, which you might be able to tell from this picture, is when a child actually leads the whole service by themselves. So you get up there, you lead the praise and worship, you lead the barhu, the shema, the amidah, you do the Torah reading, all of it. But this is one part that I think is very beautiful. And it's the moment that you actually become a Jewish adult is right before the Torah reading. Because someone representing your grandfather's generation will take the Torah out of the tabernacle, they hand it to your father, and then your father hands it to you, and it's you physically shouldering the burden of the Word of God. And it really is a burden, because when you're 13 years old, that 40-pound Torah scroll and carrying it around the congregation is no joke. But <laughs> that's the bar mitzvah. Now, before I move on to the Jewish tradition and Catholicism, I want to start by answering questions some of you might have that may seem obvious, but I never thought about it until my good friend Braxton mentioned this to me when I first uh, started talking about what I was going to put in this presentation. He said, very simply, what do the Jews think of Jesus? That sounds like a pretty obvious question, but it never, never occurred to me, so I want to answer it. <laughs> and he also introduced me to C.S. Lewis's trilemma, which I will paraphrase that you have to believe Christ is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And I think Judaism might challenge C.S. Lewis a little bit there, because I've never heard a rabbi 
say that Christ is the Lord, of course, because then they would be a priest instead of a rabbi. <laughs> I've never heard them say that he was a con man or insane, just that he was mistaken. He believed he was the Messiah, he just simply wasn't. And I think that is possibly the predominant Jewish view. But I think a second and maybe more encompassing answer is that Judaism actually doesn't talk about Jesus that much. Because the three scriptures I mentioned, they finished, they were closed books before Jesus was born. So he doesn't actually appear in Jewish scriptures really at all. There's some debate a little bit because the Talmud, later entries in the Talmud, mention someone named Yeshu or Yeshua. And there's some debate that that might be a reference to Jesus. But beyond that, Jesus doesn't appear in Jewish scriptures. So if you talk to a Jewish theologian, Jesus just really isn't mentioned that much. So I want to get that question out of the way because I really should have seen it coming and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about some of the traditions. So the first one I want to talk about is the tabernacle. And I guess I could have taken that picture out because we have one right there, a great example. But you'll see on the left, you know, you probably recognize it. It's a Catholic tabernacle. It sits behind the altar in the church. And it is a repository for the host, the word of God made flesh. And in a synagogue, behind the altar, you will see this, often called a tabernacle or an ark. And it houses the Torah scrolls, the word of God. So we have the tabernacle, we put it behind the altar, and we use it to house the word of God made flesh, because we inherited it directly from Judaism. You still see that in synagogues to this day. And the second is the camp. See, the tabernacle is always accompanied by a candle, and right now it is not lit, because the candle helps us to remember that Christ who died to redeem us is present. So when the host is in there, the candle is lit. And this too comes from Jewish tradition, because the Ark of the Covenant in the temple in Jerusalem, before it was destroyed, was always accompanied by a candle to say, to recognize that the covenant made between God and Moses was physically present. So that's why the candle accompanies the tabernacle to this day in our churches. And the last sort of basic tradition is the procession. So if you walked into a synagogue at the beginning of Saturday services, you might actually think you were in a Catholic church because the processional is exactly the same. The congregation stands, they look towards the entrance of the church, and they recite one of the 150 psalms. The rabbi processes down the central aisle, he goes up to the altar, he kisses it, and then the service begins. So that is why our processional happens in the order that it happens in, because it's exactly the same as in the Jewish service. Next are some Hebrew words. So some of you might know this, some of you might not. We actually speak quite a bit of Hebrew in the Catholic Mass. So the first and most common is Amen. Amen is directly a Hebrew word. It passed through Greek and then through Latin and then to English, but always just amen, and it means truth or certainty. So when you say amen at the end of a prayer to affirm the correctness of that prayer, to say that that prayer is true, to sort of double its meaning, you're speaking Hebrew. You're saying that prayer is true. And the second is alleluia or hallelujah. That too is a Hebrew word. And it's actually a two word phrase. Because in Hebrew, hallelu means praise. And Yah is the shorthand for Yahweh, which is the Jewish word for God. So hallelujah just says, praise God. That's the same way we use it. It's the same word we use to this day. And the third, and in my opinion the coolest, is Hosanna. That too is a Hebrew word, Hoshana. But when Jews say it, 
It is said as a cry for help or a plea for salvation. Pray God, save us, or please God, save us. That's what Hushabit means in Hebrew. And there are stories that when Christ came to Jerusalem, Jews went to him and said, Osana, Osana, save us God, God be our salvation. But when we say it, we say it to mean the same thing, but in a different tense. Because we say it as God saves. Because we're not waiting for the Messiah, we're not waiting for salvation. God sent us his son, and we are saying it in a different tense. It's not a cry for help, it's a cry of jubilation. Not God save us, but God saves. The word itself is <coughs> And then next is the Eucharist. So, in the temple, there was the Ark of the Covenant at its heart, and it contained two things. The stone tablets, that were the Ten Commandments given to Moses, and a sample of manna from the Exodus. And this sample of manna was called the bread of the presence, or the bread of the face, depending on the translation you use. And every week on Shabbat, the Levitical priest, the priest that managed the temple in Jerusalem, would present that bread of the presence, and it would be covered by a thin veil. They'd present it to the people, and it would be accompanied by bread and by wine that would be blessed and consumed by the priests. And the blessings that the priest would say over the bread are, Baruch atah Adonai, Elohenu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem in haaretz. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then the Kiddush prayer, prayer said over the wine was Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. The fruit of the vine and the work of human hands. We took these prayers and put them into the consecration of the Eucharist. So, the last thing I want to touch on, and then I'll move on to RCIA, is some of the things I mentioned about Passover. So during the Passover Seder, Sacrifices would be brought to the temple, and these sacrifices would always be a young male, unblemished lamb in the prime of his life. And the lambs would be sacrificed on the altar in the temple, a lot of blood would come out, and then that blood would be washed out of the temple with water. So when Christ, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed on the cross, and his side was pierced with a spear, and blood and water flowed out, part of that symbolism comes from the Passover sacrifices at the temple. And then, the last thing is, like I mentioned earlier, there are four cups at the Seder. And blessing and drinking those four cups fulfills God's covenant with Abraham. And at the Last Supper, Christ didn't drink the fourth cup. Because when he was on the cross and being crucified and dying for our sins, he was given that fourth cup. And that act, right before his death, was him fulfilling the old cup. And that is a part of the Passover tradition. So both these things, Judaism and our Jewish traditions and Catholicism, are both, you know, it's 4,000 years of theology. It's a lot to talk about. I don't want to spear till midnight. But I urge you to, if this stuff interests you, I urge you to look into it. I know I'm very biased about Judaism, but I find it very interesting. And the last thing I want to leave you with is to talk about RCIA or OCIA. So what is RCIA? What happens at RCIA? Well, it's a time of reflection, of prayer, of instruction, and of formation. Really what happens is that every Sunday, prospective Catholics, they go to their local parish, 
they're slowly introduced to the faith. They're slowly introduced to what it means to be Catholic. And they're given the opportunity to ask questions to their sponsors, respective Catholics are paired with a practicing Catholic sponsor who helps guide them through the process and explain these things to them. Why is it important? Well, first and foremost, I think it's a great opportunity to evangelize. I think, not for everyone, but I think often the call to evangelize is a lot about getting non-Catholics to RCIA. I think sometimes it can be forgotten that you sort of have to get them across the finish line. And for some people like myself, we didn't need any evangelization to find the church. We found it by accident or being guided by God. However it happened, a lot of converts find their way to an RCIA program without being evangelized to. But they're not there yet. So being there, answering questions, and helping those prospective Catholics is a very important route of evangelization. And another thing is, being there and showing that your parish is an open community and an accepting community is very important to prospective Catholics. Because even though you're joining a faith, you're also joining a particular parish a lot of the times. So being able to go to that parish and see that it's not just, you know, practicing Catholics that don't really care about whether or not you actually become one of them, but that it's actually a community that's there to answer your questions and to help you become one of them is very powerful. And me personally, and in my lived experience, I think there's really no limit to the change you can make in a confused person's life just by answering the questions that I needed answered in order to become Catholic. The last thing is how do you get involved? Well, if you, if CTK is your home parish, I urge you to contact Bernadette Flowers. She is the head of adult faith formation here at the cathedral, and she runs RCIA. You can become a full-blown sponsor if you really want to, but even just going to retreats or showing up to RCIA meetings here and there can be very helpful to show prospective Catholics the community that they're about to become a part of. So if you are interested, October 14th is when RCIA starts this year with a day-long retreat, and then it meets 8.30 to 10 a.m. every Sunday, and it ends with Easter Vigil on March 30th. So that's all I have. Do you have any questions?